0: Well, today we are gathering individually since we are under the threat of inclement weather and it's a very strong probability that we'll need to cancel our service on Sunday. So we're recording this message in advance and continue our study through the Gospel of John. As a way of a review and reminder, Jesus has completed his religious trial before the Jewish authorities, which consisted of three different phases. The first phase was before Annas. The second phase, which John does not record, is before Caiaphas in, the, in his home, Caiaphas the high priest, and he had convened together the Sanhedrin council, and together they had held a trial with Jesus, and as a third part of the trial, which again John does not record, they met in the wee hours of the daylight, and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin confirmed their judgment of guilt upon Jesus and had sentenced him And so they opposed upon Jesus a death sentence for blasphemy, and this was based upon Jesus' claim to be the Son of God. Since the Jewish people did not have the ability to enforce a death sentence themselves, and they feared the huge crowds that had gathered in Jerusalem for Passover week, who were very pro-Jesus, if you remember, Jesus just a few days earlier was heralded into the city to the shouts of Hosanna, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So because they feared the crowds, they got the Romans to do their dirty work for them. So in Jesus' Roman secular trial, which is where we are now, there are also three phases to it, just like there was in his religious trials. We looked at phase one last time as we studied John 18, verses 28 to 38. And in this phase of the trial, the Jews have have brought Jesus before Pilate with no charge other than that they believe him to be an evildoer. So Pilate rebuffs their requests and tells them to take care of this themselves, understanding and believing that this was a religious matter and not a civil matter that would require his participation in that. But the Jewish religious leaders indicate that they want a death sentence and they acknowledge that they don't have the ability to carry this out. So at this point in the narrative, Luke tells us in Luke twenty through 2 and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And so with this accusation, which is quite different from the conclusion at the end of the religious trials, not to mention at all the announcement of the charge in the first phase before Pilate, Pilate is now compelled to question Jesus because of this accusation of Jesus leading people not to pay their taxes. This accusation of insurrection is a serious one and is one that the Jewish leaders knew that Pilate would need to deal with. So during their conversation, Pilate determines that Jesus isn't guilty of the accusation that has been made against him, and he announces in John 18.38 that he believes that Jesus is innocent. So Luke records after this very first acquittal in Luke 23, 5 through 7, but they, the religious leaders, kept on insisting, saying, he stirs up the people teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. When Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. When he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at the time. Now John doesn't record this second phase of the Roman trial, but at this point Pilate sends Jesus to Herod, which is now the beginning of phase 2 of his Roman trial. This continues in Luke chapter 23 verses 8 through 11. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him, Herod did not have a first hand encounter with Jesus. He had only heard about some of the things that Jesus had done throughout his ministry, the miracles that he performed, undoubtedly raising Lazarus from the dead, healing the blind and the deaf, and casting out demons of those who were um, who were um, inhabited by these evil spirits. So Herod was named King of Judea during the occupancy. Of Israel. Now, the mention of this Herod is not Herod the Great, who was the ruler when Jesus was born, but this is his son, Herod Antipas. And so every time we would see the name Herod in the Gospels, except for the time around Jesus' birth, it refers then to Herod Antipas. He is the one who ruled over Jerusalem, over the nation of Israel, was declared to be the king of Israel during the Roman occupancy. So this Herod Antipas is the Herod that is responsible for the death of John the Baptist. So Herod had never met Jesus, but he wanted to because he'd heard of Jesus' miracles, and he wanted to see something spectacular. He was looking for some kind of miraculous show. So verse 9 continues, And he, Herod, questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. We don't know exactly what Herod had asked of Jesus, but there was some kind of an inquiry that took place, and it says here that Jesus didn't respond. It's the only person recorded in Scripture that Jesus refused to talk to. He spoke to the sinners. He spoke to the religious leaders. He encountered people all throughout his ministry, and this is the only recorded instance where Jesus did not respond to an individual who had engaged him in any kind of conversation. Now, it's important to recognize that Herod is a step far above Pilate who is the governor. Herod is recognized as the king over Judea and therefore the king over the occupancy of the Israelites. And as Jesus is before him, he doesn't plead for mercy. He doesn't ask for his help. He doesn't maintain his innocence. He doesn't talk about the injustice that he is enduring. He sits in silence exactly as Isaiah prophesied like a lamb being led to slaughter. This narrative in the Gospel of Luke continues in verse 10. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him Vehemently. So just like when he was before Pilate, the religious leaders hoped that Herod would hear something that would cause him to grant to them their request for a death sentence over Jesus. But just like Pilate, Herod finds no guilt in Jesus either. Verse 11, And Herod with the soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. So as the religious leaders are hurling their accusations against Jesus, Herod's personal soldiers, his bodyguards, take their cue and then begin to verbally mistreat Jesus. He'd already been beaten by the temple police and it is unclear whether or not he was physically assaulted here with Herod's soldiers. But to complete the mockery, Herod dresses him in a gorgeous robe, which is probably purple because purple would signify royalty. And then he sends Jesus back to Pilate. And upon doing so, this ends the second phase of Jesus' Roman trial. Now, the third phase of the Roman trial, as recorded in John, omits what I believe is to be an important introduction into this phase of the trial. So Jesus returns to Pilate from Herod and we read in Luke chapter 23, verses 13 through 15 Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod. For for he sent me back, excuse me, for he sent him back to us, and behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. So, for the record, it is important to note that in the first two phases of Jesus' Roman secular trial, neither Pilate nor Herod found Jesus guilty of anything, and most certainly nothing that would be deserving of death. Jesus has been declared not guilty twice in his Roman secular trial. So the religious leaders were trying to absolve themselves from any responsibility in Jesus' death, but it should be very, very clear who is truly responsible for Jesus' murder. And that's exactly what it was. Here is an innocent man who has been declared not guilty by his civil judges. He's had a trumped-up charge against him by his own religious leaders. And as we would read in the book of Acts, in one of Peter's very first sermons, Act 2.23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So very clearly from Peter's perspective, it is the religious leaders who are guilty of Jesus' death at the hands of the Roman godless men who were the ones who would eventually carry out the execution of Jesus. Now that brings us to this third phase of the trial. It's a very lengthy passage of Scripture, and rather than reading it all in one pass-through, I'm going to read through this as we go through our outline. There are five major points with several subpoints underneath each of these. So let's look at Roman numeral one in our outline the offer. As this third phase of the religious trial begins, again under Pilate Pilate is going to make an offer to the religious leaders. He says in verse 39, "...but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the King of the Jews?" So since Pilate and Herod had already found Jesus not guilty, he is offering the religious leaders a chance to do the right thing. Although Pilate had no love for the Jews and was not indebted to them for anything he does at this point seem to be interested in securing the release of Jesus who he, did, who he believes to be an innocent man. Now we read in Matthew 27 verse 13 that while Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man for last night I suffered greatly and a dream because of him. So this is important as this as this third phase of the trial plays out, and the offer that Pilate is making is very straightforward, release Jesus. And there's a question mark there because this is in effect what Pilate is asking them to do. I have the ability to release for you someone because it is the Passover. Should I release to you this man named Jesus? Now at this point, Matthew tells us in his narrative that a crowd is beginning to gather It's sometime after 9 o'clock and sometime before noon and undoubtedly the crowd is hearing what is going on, that Jesus, the one that they had ushered into Jerusalem just a few days earlier as the potential Messiah is now in Pilate's court on trial for his life. So it's possible that Pilate is hoping that as this crowd is gathering that this group could neutralize the desires of the religious leaders and force them into having Jesus released. But the religious leaders would not back down and it is possible that the crowd who once thought Jesus to be the Messiah and in their expectation the political ruler who would overthrow the Roman yoke of occupancy and restore Israel back to independence, they're now seeing this Jesus bound Somewhat beaten after what he had secured, after what he's endured through the temple police. It appears to the crowd that Jesus is not the Messiah they hoped him to be, that he was not going to be able to provide for them independence, that he was not going to overthrow the Roman yoke of occupancy. And so it would very, very likely make the gathering crowd very willing to follow the lead of the religious leaders, because after all, Jesus is not fulfilling what they expected in the Messiah. So, since Jesus is bound and on trial, He's not going to produce for them the independence they hoped for, it would make Him a very unappealing Messiah in their eyes. And so, as the crowds gather, they're very likely going to follow the lead of the religious leaders. So, as Pilate makes this offer to the religious leaders to release to them Jesus, they say, not Jesus, We want Barabbas. Verse 40. So they cried out again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. And John adds the comment, now Barabbas was a robber. No one knows with any certainty exactly who Barabbas was. Here John refers to him as a robber. Matthew calls him a notorious prisoner. Mark and Luke call him a murderer and an insurrectionist. The religious leaders didn't dislike insurrectionists since their goal was to have Rome overthrown. The religious leaders hated the Romans and they wanted nothing more than their own political independence and so they would never throw an insurrectionist against the Roman courts because they hoped that any and every insurrectionist would be able to free them from Roman occupancy. Although this is the charge they brought to Pilate, that Jesus was an insurrectionist. It's interesting at this point to notice that the religious leaders who had accused Jesus of insurrection are now requesting the release of Barabbas, who by Matthew excuse me, by Mark and Luke's account is in fact a murderer and an insurrectionist. The hypocrisy is overwhelmingly obvious as the Jews want release to them a man who has already been declared guilty under the very charge that they are now inaccurately Casting against Jesus himself. This brings us to number two in our outline as we go through this phase of the trial, and that is the appeasement. The appeasement is what Pilate is going to offer to the religious leaders in hopes that he can quash this desire they have to see Jesus put to death. Now, Matthew records an exchange that helps us understand The appeasement more fully. So, after the religious leaders called for the release of Barabbas, we read in Matthew chapter 27, verses 22 to 25, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, Crucify him. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Crucify Him. When Pilate saw that He was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. So Pilate is very clearly trying to prevent Jesus' death, but he isn't going to risk a riot. A riot would be looked upon very disfavorably by his superiors. And Pilate didn't want to risk this because this would put his rule as the governor under very serious eyes. So he wants to mollify the crowd. He wants to see Jesus released, but he's not going to risk a riot because after all, self-preservation is his number one priority. So verse 1 we read, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. So as a part of this appeasement, Jesus is going to be punished. Now you've got to remember, this is purely an attempt to satisfy the religious leaders. Pilate is hoping that rather than killing Jesus, he can instead just punish him severely, and that would be enough. But think about this. Pilate and Herod have already declared him to be innocent, But it seems reasonable to them to have Jesus severely beaten for absolutely no reason other than hoping that it would satisfy a bloodthirsty crowd and perhaps Jesus could be spared from this terrible death of crucifixion. So in a very simple way, John and the other Gospel writers simply say that Pilate had Jesus scourged. Now a scourging was an incredibly brutal experience. In a scourging, the victim would be stripped, he would be tied to a post, and he would be beaten severely, in turn, by many different torturers. When they would beat him, they would use a whip. It was a short wooden handle, and it would have several leather strips attached to it, and these leather strips would be embedded with jagged pieces of bone or metal. Now in a scourging, which was not foreign to the Jews, the Jews would limit the beating that one would undertake to 39 lashes. The law stipulated that you couldn't hit someone more than 40 times, but they would always stop at 39 in case they miscounted and they didn't want to technically violate their own law. So the Jews would stop at 39 lashings or 39 floggings, but the Romans did not honor any such restriction. The punishment would continue until the torturers were exhausted. The commanding officer decided that that was enough and would just simply stop it, or, as was often the case, the victim would die. It was not uncommon for someone to die in the midst of a scourging. The damage was so severe during a scourging that the body could be so torn and lacerated that muscle, bone, vein, and sometimes internal organs would often be exposed. This punishment was so horrible that Roman citizens were exempted from a scourging. And so here is Jesus, the innocent man, declared not guilty twice, standing before his torturers on trumped-up religious charges, enduring this punishment as a part of the price of redemption. But in all of this, as he stood before his Roman torturers, this wasn't enough. Not only was Jesus punished, but also Jesus is now mocked. Verse 2 and 3, "...and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And he began to come up to him and say to him, Hail, King of the Jews!" and to give him slaps in the face. So kings in this day would sometimes wear a wreath that was woven out of some kind of deciduous plant and it would be put on their heads indicating their position as a ruler or as a king. This crown is, be- is called a thorny one and it is, it is believed to be from the date palm, which would typically have thorns that were at least an inch, if not longer. And so they put together this crown of thorns. They pressed it onto Jesus' head, causing more pain and more bleeding. They put a purple robe on Him. Matthew tells us that they put a reed in His hand as a makeshift scepter, and they made Him look like a pitiful caricature of a king. John tells us that they slapped Him. They verbally mocked Him. Matthew says they spat on Him and began to hit Him on the head with the reed that they put in His hand. And this is just an indication of how merciless the Romans were. They were some of the most savage and barbaric people in all of history. And here is Jesus who is punished, but innocent. Verse 4, Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. This is the third time that Jesus has been declared innocent in his Roman trial. Even though he's been declared not guilty, he's been severely beaten, he's been mocked, and he has been ridiculed. And now he is presented to the religious leaders as this pretend king. Verse 5, Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. At this point in the trial, after Jesus had undergone this scourging, having the crown of thorns pressed upon his head and then beaten again by the Romans in the head and face. It is very likely that Jesus would be barely recognizable. His face and body so badly beaten and swollen, that it is likely that he would find it very difficult to stand, let alone walk. And he is presented to the religious leaders wearing a ridiculous crown and a blood-soaked robe, no longer the king of the Jews, but now behold the man. The sarcasm in Pilate's statement heightens that he does not believe Jesus to be a king, but just a simple man who poses no threat to Rome and no threat to the to the religious leaders. It's very likely that Pilate believes that this severe beating that Jesus has undergone would satisfy the religious leaders and diffuse the situation. Perhaps this case can be resolved and dismissed. And this brings us to number three in our outline, and that is the rejection. Verse 6a, So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify! Crucify! The religious leaders want death. They're not satisfied with the severe beating. They will stop at nothing. They believe that Jesus just simply has to die. What's really sad to remember as we're at this point in this third phase of the Roman trial, is that the religious leaders had violated every one of their own judicial laws in order to fabricate and manipulate a hearing before a Roman authority that these alleged men of God have stooped so low that they are willing to lie, to see Jesus beaten within an inch of His life, To see that and have absolutely no mercy. To have no satisfaction. And to be absolutely driven to a death sentence by Jesus. They want death, but Pilate wants closure. Verse 6b, Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Fourth time, That Jesus has been declared not guilty, the third time that Pilate has said that himself. Pilate is exasperated and he wants this over with. He deems Jesus to be innocent. He's already had him beaten severely, and for him, that should be enough. He believes this ought to come to an end. It is very debatable that in the statement that, that Pilate is giving permission to the religious leaders to actually kill Jesus. And the reason that that is debatable, because Pilate very likely knew that only the Romans would crucify, not the Jews and not any other people group. Pilate knows that it is very, very unlikely that the Jews would crucify him. So in hopes that this would be the final way to appease them and satisfy them, he just simply says, take care of this yourself. I want this to be over. And it is believed by most that he expects this to be the end of it. But the religious leaders are determined. They are not going to stop one step short of execution. They want to see this carried out to the end. So the Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. So here we are in the middle of the third phase of this Roman trial that the truth comes out. Jesus isn't an insurrectionist as they have accused Him. He has, in their own minds, violated their own religious law by claiming to be the Son of God. And of course, Jesus is the Son of God, but they reject that. And because of that, they accuse Him of of blasphemy and they want for Him to die. So this brings us to number four in our outline, and that is the concern. Now verse 8, Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement... He was even more afraid, and that indicates that he was already very fearful of the religious leaders, of some kind of a reprisal by his Roman superiors. So this statement by the religious leaders that Jesus has made himself out to be the Son of God has Pilate even more fearful than he already was. So why was Pilate afraid? Well, not only is he fearful of a riot and a mob, and not only is he fearful of his Roman superiors, but the Roman people in general were a very superstitious people. Remember, they worshipped many, many different gods. Their temples and their palaces adorned the cities of these make-believe gods. They worshipped many, many different gods, and some of their beliefs were such that they believed that it was possible for some of the gods they worshipped to live amongst them as men. So as Pilate is now hearing this accusation that Jesus made him out to be the Son of a God, Pilate is having to wrestle with the reality, have I tortured a God? If Jesus was the Son of God, and he had just scourged him and mocked him and ridiculed him, this would be very bad news for Pilate. He feared that if Jesus had some kind of divine power, which of course Jesus did, and that Jesus decided to use those divine powers against Pilate to enact vengeance upon him, then it stood to reason that Pilate thought that he would be in big, big trouble. Now remember... Earlier in this trial, his wife had told him to have nothing to do with Jesus because of the dream that she had had. So all of this together, the mob, his Roman superiors, this warning by his wife, this accusation that Jesus might actually be the Son of a God, poses considerable fear in the heart of Pilate. So at this point, he takes Jesus back into the praetorium and he asks him the question. Verse 9a, he entered again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? Basically, he's saying, who are you and where are you from? Are you a God like the religious leaders have asserted? In other words, what Pilate wants to know is this, am I in big, big trouble or are they wrong about who they accuse you of being. This question that Pilate asks of Jesus is met with silence. Verse 9b, But Jesus gave him no answer. Now remember, Jesus has already told him that his kingdom was from another realm. He also told Pilate that he came into the world born as a king, and he came into the world to testify about his truth and when Jesus revealed that to Pilate, Pilate rejected those statements and simply said, what is truth? He had no interest in Jesus' claim to be a king from another realm. He had no desire to hear Jesus talk about his version of the truth. He simply rejected who Jesus claimed to be. He wanted to wash his hands of this whole affair But now he's very, very concerned about who Jesus might be and what might come against him if Jesus is in fact a son of God. But Jesus meets this question, responds to this question with absolute silence because he's already told him who he is and he's already told him why he has come into the world. At this point, Pilate issues a warning to Jesus. In verse 10, so Pilate said to him, you do, not, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Now, Pilate was a Roman governor and it would be rare that someone would not answer a direct question by him. It was a matter of an insult to not give a direct response to someone of such high regard and high authority as a governor over this Judean province. So, what Pilate is basically saying is, I have the authority to either kill you or I can release you. And the irony in this threat or this warning that Pilate issues is very simply this, Pilate did not possess the courage to do either one. He didn't have the courage to release Jesus, having declared Him to be innocent three separate times Neither did he have the authority or the the courage to declare him guilty and simply allow the Jews to have their way. So Jesus issues now a response to this warning that Pilate has issued to him. Verse 11, Pilate, excuse me, Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So there's two parts to this response that Jesus gives. The first one is this, is that you have limited authority. You only have the authority that God my Father allows you to have. My Father is sovereign and in complete control of my fate, and there is nothing that you can do that will affect what's going to happen to me. You think you have all the power, but you have limited power that has been granted to you by my Father. The second part of this response is very simply this. You are still culpable in my death even though you have the authority to release me. Even though the religious leaders have the greater sin by handing me over to you, the religious leaders hold the greater sin, and most especially Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the high priest. He and the religious leaders have seen the authentication of Jesus' claim to be Messiah by virtue of the miracles that he has performed. Remember, they couldn't refute any of the miracles that Jesus performed. They only denied his authority to perform them it is very likely that Pilate knew nothing about the verification of Jesus' claim to Messiahship, and although technically he has the ability to release Jesus, he isn't going to do so, and therefore he is still going to be culpable for the death that Jesus is going to experience. Caiaphas and the religious leaders are the ones who have initiated the Roman trial, not Pilate and not the Romans, and in this response, Jesus Himself delegates out upon the religious leaders the responsibility for His death. You know, that has been a great debate throughout the history who is actually responsible for Jesus' death. Some say it's not the Jews. They deny it was their responsibility. They want to completely pass responsibility on to the Romans. But it's very obvious who is really responsible. This brings us to the final part in our outline, Roman numeral 5, the final appeal. This final appeal comes from Pilate to the religious leaders. It begins in verse 12a. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release Jesus. He basically declares that he is innocent. Spooked by the Son of God accusation, remembering what his wife has said, not finding any evidence of insurrection, Pilate seeks Jesus' release. But as he seeks this release, he is met with a threat from the religious leaders. Verse 12b, But the Jews cried out saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. So this statement by the religious leaders is the epitome of hypocrisy. The Jews hated Caesar. Caesar the Jews hated Rome the Jews hated the Roman occupancy and they themselves were not friendly to anything Roman they hated everything about the Roman people because they were gener- they were gentiles they considered them to be barbarians and they wanted to be independent from and they wanted to be freed from their sinful presence so in this response the religious leaders Threatened Pilate that if he releases Jesus, then they are going to make trouble for him. They will report to Tiberius, who is the Caesar over all of Rome, not Herod, who is king of Judea, and not over not Pilate, who is governor over Judea. But they will report to, to Tiberius, who is Caesar, that Pilate let a rebel towards Rome who claimed to be a king go free. And this would be bad news for Pilate. Pilate is given a choice. Loyalty to Rome or loyalty to your conscience. And the choice has become incredibly easy now for Pilate. And we see the concession that he makes in verse 13. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now the pavement was the seat where a formal official judicial pronouncement was made and then we get this little add on from John here in verse 14 now it was the passover excuse me now it was the day of preparation for the passover it was about the 6th hour and he said to Jesus behold excuse me he said to the Jews behold your king and so in a final act of mockery pilate presents the battered and beaten Jesus still wearing a crown of thorns still wearing a blood-soaked purple robe, and he presents him as the king of the Jews. In a sense, what Pilate is saying, this is all the king that you people deserve. Here is your king. Verse 15a, they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to him, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So in a final act of irony and duplicity, the religious leaders claim that they have no king except Caesar. It is ironic because they themselves have now committed actual blasphemy by identifying with the worldly Roman king Caesar It is duplicitous because Jehovah was the true king of Israel, not Caesar. But there's also a hint of truth in what they have just said. With no regard for their true king, Jesus the Messiah, they are left with only Caesar as their king. Verse 16 concludes the third phase of the Roman trial. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. Pilate has given in to the desire without ever pronouncing Jesus as being guilty. He doesn't hand Jesus over to the Jews for crucifixion. He hands Jesus over to crucifixion as the will of the Jews. It is in this sense that he has handed Jesus over to them. The Romans will carry out the, the, the wishes of the religious leaders and exacting a crucifixion death upon Jesus, the supposed King of the Jews. So the moment of God's eternal plan of redemption and eternity past has now arrived. It is initiated with His incarnation. It is verified through the life and mission of Jesus. And now it's going to come to pass on Calvary. Jesus is the Lamb led to the slaughter, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. All throughout these trials, both Roman and Jewish, religious and secular, Jesus never defends himself. He never declares to be the victim of injustice. He never executes his ability in his power to rid himself of this God-ordained fate. He simply sits in majestic silence willing to do and obey all that the Father has called Him to do. And there is nothing that is going to stop Jesus from going to the cross. And so now we will begin to look in the days ahead at the actual events of the crucifixion and thankfully the glorious resurrection and the restoration of Peter to the apostolic ministry. Would you join me in prayer, please? Father, we are deeply saddened in our hearts as we relive and as we remember these events that led to Jesus' death. We know that He is an innocent man. We know that He has done nothing deserving of this fate. But what we do know, that in love, You sent Your one and only Son to come into the world that You have created in order to be an atoning sacrifice so that the sins of those you have called to yourself could be cleansed and forgiven at the cross. And through the, through the resurrection, we would be made free, declared righteous, and then be acceptable to you. Father, how we pray that you would help us to understand with our deepest heart's affection what this means, and with our mind's deepest commitment to live out an absolute commitment to you in everything we think and say and do. Father, how we thank you for the love that you have displayed to us through the life of Christ, through the injustice of his death, and through the victory of his resurrection. We thank you for this great love. and pray that you would help us to treat the salvation that we experience and enjoy with the true treasure that it is.